Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Hey everyone, this is Vikram from Quantlayer. Thank you for listening to our 12th podcast. In this episode, Faisan and I re-examine the drama around Tesla and discuss its similarities and differences with Amazon. We also look at ARK Invest Catherine Wood's open letter to Elon Musk asking him to keep the company public. We discuss why we think the Bitcoin ETF's failures are a good thing and the more and more activity that we're seeing on our alerting platform. Enjoy. Hey everyone, you have Quantlayer, Vikram speaking, also joined by Fizan, known as the Wizard. Hey. So uh, we usually have our episodes out on a Monday, so apologies if we're a couple days late on this one. Both of us are in the throes of finishing up uh, some client engagements and in the process of deploying. And no matter how well you plan up ahead of time, the last couple of weeks of a client engagement are pretty busy. Yeah, and it's uh, I think both of us have been towards the end of ours, so super busy. Yeah. I don't know. I guess uh, what are some of your thoughts on uh, on planning software projects up front and some of the gives and takes of that? So there's two whole like worlds. One is like you're working on your own product and the other is uh, client work. And obviously with the latter, you have a lot less, you usually have a lot less uh, input into what you can uh, do timeline wise. But there's a few things almost in every project uh, at least on the technical side, that you can take control of that can dramatically affect uh, timelines. So one is like deployment-related stuff, and the other is integration-related stuff. So you know, on most projects, you have to deploy somewhere, somehow. And what we've found is that basically figuring out what is production going to look like, what is staging going to look like early on, and then getting at least the staging-like environment up and running makes it a lot easier to do early on as opposed to towards the end of the project. Yeah. So what I mean by that is, let's say we have some, I'll make up a fictional project, but let's say we have some app that's going to have some server that's like processing some data, maybe two web servers, and then some, it's using some like serverless functions, AWS Lambdas. So the version of that that we'd be running locally is probably just one one monolith where we maybe even mock out like the lambdas with some local local JavaScript. But we can imagine like, okay, what would staging look like and what would uh, production look like? So the goal with staging is to mimic production in terms of environments and points of failure, but not necessarily scale. And what I mean by that is if we know that, okay, in production, we're going to have 10, you know, 10 web nodes running behind a load balancer, and then like seven things like processing data and then a database with some sort of a, a failover, then we know our point of failure is like, okay, these serverless functions that maybe connect to the web instances, the web instances connected to a source and then a database. So for a staging instance, we wouldn't want to run like our web, our source and our database all in one, one machine or as one uh, you know the web and source as a as an application. What we'd want to do is at least break those out into you know separate nodes that connect to each other, 
And that way we get all of the same issues with the way they communicate, with the way each one utilizes resources and the sort of errors we'd see in production just at lower scale. Yep. So thinking about that early is really important because it, A, lets you incrementally build out your uh, DevOps process. Like you're probably not going to come out of the box with like a perfect CI CD setup. That's a continuous improvement, uh, continuous deployment. But by at least having, let's say, your staging environment set up and as you develop new features, uh, deploying to staging and trying it out in the way that it's going to eventually be, you're going to uncover like weird environment issues, uh, memory leaks, any sort of uh, network latency that's happening. A big one is really depending on the environment you're using, especially for us using Elixir. There are things that you can have across uh you know, messages that get passed along boundaries just using code that when you break it up across nodes may need a different sort of interface. So it's interesting you're saying earlier about how staging should mimic production. It makes a ton of sense. The whole point of staging is that it should be a mirror, not a mirror, but a mimic of what your actual environment is going to be like. One thing yeah. that we've seen clients do, and it's it's understandable, but it's also a mistake. Having their staging environment on some other environment than where production is going to be. So say it's going to take a while to get production up or the view is that it's going to take a while to get production up. They might say like, okay, let's just get this running on Heroku so we can get stuff going. So the idea there is like, I, I think it's understandable. It's you want to get, I mean, you're starting a project, you want to show something in the project, right? Yeah. But the moment you start doing that, you suddenly have a mismatch between uh, what, staging is like and what production is like. Yeah. And this most, you know, this generally is something that happens during client work because uh, one thing you'll have sometimes, especially if there's like external stakeholders is they want, you know, they, you've done all this planning, you've laid out your sprints and they want to go into that first sprint demo with a whole bunch of stuff to show. So oftentimes like you won't have your backend set up or your staging set up and you'll build a lot of stuff in an unrealistic environment or against fake data. And you'll have a lot to show that first sprint, but a lot of that work realistically is either throwaway work or is almost misarchitected and is going to be more work to then go fix. Yeah. I like to say that the first sprint or even two sprints, you should actually have nothing to show because getting your infrastructure in place, your architecture in place, all of your, like everything that will let you have the rest of the project move smoothly and quickly and let you bring developers on and off and deploy to your environments quickly, like that stuff should all get in place first. And usually that means like you may have nothing to show for two weeks because you've just been setting stuff up. Now, that's not always possible. Sometimes the stakeholders will absolutely want to see visuals or you're reliant on some third-party integration or prerequisite that's coming from them that you can't control. Uh, in my experience, it's almost always slower and less effective to do things that way, but you know, your limitations are your limitations, but as much as possible, you want to, especially dealing with uh, third-party integrations, get that stuff in early because most of the rest of the stuff you probably should be able to estimate reasonably effectively. You'll know you're like, it's that whole, you know, known unknowns in terms of where problems are going to lie. Whereas with your third-party integrations, that's where you're going to have your most uh, unknown unknowns. So there might be stability, reliability, scalability issues. There might be broken APIs. It's the hardest to estimate in terms of how long things are going to take. So you want to get all those questions out of the way early. 
Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it's this, uh, it's a martial art. For those of you who don't know, it's, it's basically this submission wrestling martial art. And there's a term in that martial art called tap early and tap often. And the idea behind that is, uh, you know, when you're practicing with someone, you're not in a tournament type of situation. It's not like this fight to the end where you're going to be more aggressive, let's say. When you're just practicing, you just want to get moves down. You want to get them correct. So what you do is, you know, if someone's about to submit you and you know you've been submitted, just tap, just tap. And then you can, quote unquote, live to fight another day. So I'm just curious, do you think there's kind of an analogy here with like deploy early, deploy often type of thing? Yeah, I think deploy early, deploy often is to me like good preparation and incremental improvement. So I don't know if the analogy is tap early, tap often. To me, tap early and tap often is more along the lines of, uh, you know, like let's say I have a server up and running and it gets absolutely saturated with connections or requests. What I want to do in that scenario is start dropping requests rather than just accepting everything till the whole system crashes. Mm. So tap really tap often to me is almost more like, you know, how Erlang has like, let it crash. And so that seems more of an analogy. Gotcha. You know, as opposed to just not, not tapping and just passing out, which is the server right. crash. <laughs> and I guess in the real world, someone has to wake you up and... Someone has to turn the server back on. Exactly. Yeah. Restart and there, you've, stuff might be misconfigured right. <laughs> or screwed right. up. You have to go clean up some PID files. Yeah. So one thing that we talked about a couple episodes ago, uh, and we just have to bring it up again because it just continued oh, drama, is, the, is, is Tesla. This really needs to not turn into a Tesla we podcast, know. but we can't. I know. It with or just, we could launch a separate Tesla podcast. Uh, it really, it really I turns into the world has enough Tesla news. <laughs> so a recap of what happened last time. Basically, a couple of podcasts ago, we talked about how Elon Musk put out a tweet that he was taking Tesla private for $420 per share and that funding had been secured. So this was a, a gigantic claim and rumors started flying around about whether or not he was doing that to anger the angry shorts even more, uh, whether he was sincere in his claim, whether he acted improperly. Um, and who their suitors would be, and so forth. I think it came out that people thought the Saudis... Probably all of the above is probably the right answer. (laughs) (laughs) And I think people thought like Saudis were going to be the main contender because they'd already invested in Tesla. And then there was news about them investing in competitors. And the shorts, I saw this all over Twitter, the shorts were eating that up. And I don't think this is that big of a deal. Even if they invest in a competitor of Tesla's, I mean, funds do this all the time. Like... If you're a big fund, mm-hmm. you have capital to deploy and you have a limited number of places to deploy it. So they, and funds don't necessarily know who's going to win. They just want to bet on a market. So just assuming that they did that and that'll be bad for Tesla. I just don't, I don't think that's fair. Yeah. And also like, I think, I don't remember the, which competitor it was, but most, you know, most of the Tesla competitors that are not existing car companies are still very early stage, low volume I would argue higher risk. And I think the investment was half a billion or a billion dollars. So it's just a much, it's a much smaller sort of alternative. Yeah. And, and they're not in production. And I guess that goes into the, the issue of risk reward. You know, if Tesla's already a $55 billion company, upside starts getting limited. Mm-hmm. Unless you think like Tesla is going to be this, uh, a software company instead of an auto company, like how, like what happened with Amazon. Yeah. And Amazon was this other company that was intensely debated by, longs and shorts, much less so now. 
but back in the day they were they were really unprofitable. And so in fact, I specifically remember how Amazon would trade right after earnings quarter after quarter. So in Wall Street parlance, there's this term, give them a pass. And it basically just means ignore the bad news in a quarter because the long-term view is still intact. And when Amazon announced earnings, the way they traded was they got a pass uh, quarter after quarter. The numbers would come out and it'll always be low margins and losses. And the stock would trade down four, five, 8%. I remember this one time it traded down 13%. And then in late 2008, 2009, when everything was crazy, I specifically remember the stock traded down 25% and finished up 25%. So they would have these, yeah, they would have these insane moves over the course of like half an hour into a conference call. So it was a really nice stock for short-term earnings type of traders with respect to that. In general, stocks with a ton of controversy are awesome trading stocks because they have so much volatility. Because you have this constant like tug of war between longs and shorts. Anyway, so with Amazon, they printed low margins and losses for the longest time. Shorts pointed to this and said, hey, look, they just sell stuff online. There's no way you can justify this valuation. It's just a retail company. You know, what happens if Walmart just does this? Like that was a thing, like Walmart's just going to hire a bunch of software developers and they're going to sell stuff online. So theoretically, all these are reasonable. That view really ignored what was going on fundamentally at the company. So... Basically, Amazon's retail, that's fine. Yeah, they sell stuff. Yeah, that's that's the definition of retail. You sell stuff to consumers. But they're fundamentally a tech company too. They use tech to improve supply chain risk and supply chain management to reduce costs. So they were doing this a decade. They were doing actually doing it a decade before other retailers started thinking about it. So companies like Chipotle, Whole Foods, I think, I think they started drawing on this Amazon playbook too. And... People who had left Amazon went to these companies and helped promote these types of uh, technology, technological advances. And probably the most obvious and glaring omission of the shorts was that they totally ignored uh, Amazon Web Services. And basically, I don't think the bears' views changed until Amazon's AWS numbers started coming out, which were just you know these huge, astonishing revenue and high margin numbers. Yeah, and I remember. Uh- I remember when that happened. It was, I think, I talked talk to I think you and one or two other people that were would always talk about Amazon and their how they're not making money, but the stock keeps growing. And when that came out, I think everyone was surprised. And I wonder if there's a parallel with Tesla, where you know, okay, if you value them as a car company compared to Ford or whatnot, it seems like their valuation is crazy high. But if you look at what else they're doing, which is batteries and superchargers, basically, I don't know how their solar panels are yet. Everything you see when it comes to teardowns, it does seem like their batteries have an edge, like it's not just a commodity. And then with the supercharger network, they've built out this pretty big supercharger network and it's growing where if you want to charge your car, like you're most, more likely to run into a, you know, a Tesla supercharger and maybe there's longer term some value there. Yeah. So like where, you know, what Amazon's like AWS just started as internal infrastructure they needed for their own projects and turned out to be this super profitable thing. And the same idea with supercharged and batteries, it was a way to make the cars more appealing, but maybe that's where a lot of the value lies. Yeah, let's come back to AWS because I think it's I think your comparison is super interesting. So, I mean, how would you describe AWS and what AWS gives its users? Because we kind of basically take it for granted as developers. We kind of take what AWS is doing in the background for granted. Yeah. Even though we respect what it's doing. Yeah. And But think about like five, 10 years ago when 
companies are doing a lot of their stuff in-house. Yeah. Probably a bit more than five years. But yeah. Say 10 years ago, definitely. A lot more stuff was going on in-house. Yeah. You know, what did AWS give these guys? And I mean, yeah, I think the easy, but the best way to look at that is the before and after. Let's, you know, go back n number of years and you and I want to launch your product. Like, what do we have to do? If we're far enough back, we have to actually buy some servers and then like hook them up to the internet to power and like run them out of somewhere. Now, what do we not have? We don't necessarily have virtualization. We have to buy or uh, add that separately. Uh, scaling means buying more physical servers. If we want redundancy in the same location, we can do that by again buying more servers. If we want it across, you know, power supplies or networks, like we now have to have two physical locations. If we want to upgrade our hardware, like that's another huge hassle. Like if we just have say five physical servers running and we need to like upgrade from regular hard drives to SSDs, what does that process involve? Some way of like you know, if our customers want a SLA from us that we can provide a certain amount of reliability, and again, it's just you and me with five servers, how do we do that? We have to follow some sort of auditable for compliance or for security. Like all of these things are very hard to do at smaller scale. So I'd say one of the things that AWS gives you is it gives you all of these at a scale that was previously only accessible to, by like really large IT deployments, right? Because you're not going to be able to build all of that stuff out across multiple locations as a small team with limited funds. Yep. And whereas now you basically just provision what you need. You can opt into all of the things I mentioned above in terms of compliance or security or upgrading your hardware. And it's something that would not have existed to you before as a small participant because your stepwise function is very big. Like if you have one server and you need a little bit more capacity, you have to buy a whole another server and probably double your costs or more. Um, Same thing if you want to add some level of redundancy. So AWS A gives you like a a much lower brace price, but it decreases the marginal cost of adding more services or improving the quality of your services. And so it just made a lot of this stuff available to a lot smaller organizations. Yep. And I guess there were groups of investors who understood this, but definitely underestimated how meaningful it was. So why do you think people ignored this kind of thing? Yeah, so I can't speak as an investor, but as a as a developer, looking back before AWS did everything that it does now, like virtual servers or what ha- like hosted servers, what have you, felt like a commodity. Like you pay a certain amount for a certain resource, you sort of SSH in, deploy your stuff, and then they pro- maybe provide you know some services, some redundancy, whatnot. But it felt like a commodity. And I think that people underestimated a lot of the value that uh, AWS provided. One, a lot of those other commodity services don't offer everything that I mentioned above. Two, I think people underestimated the value of their, uh, and I don't know if this is a word, but APIification and spot markets for hardware. So rather than having to say like, okay, have you know, I've reserved like, some fraction of a server for a year or for six months on contract, you could just go in and buy like, you could spin up a server for like 30 minutes if you need to run some certain task. Like they they had their spot markets where based on demand, you can provision servers. And that was all powered by this idea that everything you interact with, with them is an API, whether it's their servers or changing permissioning or billing, everything is uh, API. And so I think that really made it a lot easier to automate your infrastructure against against theirs. So 
as your organization grows, you can just automate more and more stuff against uh, AWS or or their. Uh, now they have some competitors. So there's actually a really good article that came out by Steve. Uh, I think his last name is pronounced Yegi. Uh, he worked at Google and Amazon. He used to have a blog that uh, had some pretty insightful articles. And he basically talks about how there was at one point at Amazon just an edict that all teams have to run essentially a microservices architecture where each team uh, needs to communicate with every other service via API. And the upsides and downsides of that architecture are for another podcast. But basically what it did was it just made, by them making everything internal, uh, API-based, it made the, the transition from exposing your services internally to externally a lot more straightforward because you essentially just change the author, you know, the authorization levels and you, you're the way your API works internally is now how it works externally. And that just became the architecture for everything, which I think helped them productize a lot of what they were doing internally and also roll out more stuff to their users. So for especially for like medium and larger organizations, there's a huge upside to being able to just plug in, grab the amount of services that you need and scale sort of as you grow. The one downside I would like to mention is that like the example I gave in the before was like a small organization, maybe just you and I trying to spin up a product. The downside is it's a pretty big surface area of like understanding the identity and access management stuff, the networking stuff, uh, what each of these APIs are and what they give you. So there's definitely a lot more of a learning curve and more opportunity to shoot yourself in the foot. Uh, a small example of which we're seeing is just every now and then you get these like articles where someone left an S3 bucket with customer information exposed yeah. <laughs> that got discovered because it legitimately is a little bit uh, of a learning curve to just handle all of their permissioning and uh, access management. Yep. But yeah, basically to your original question of like, why was this underestimated? I think people thought of it as more of like a commodity uh, web server when really they have a breadth of offerings, this APIification, and then through all of their compliance and service level agreements, they gained the trust of businesses too. So it, it became like the whole, you know, you don't get fired for buying IBM. It, it feels like that for using AWS, honestly, when right. you're talking to clients sometimes. Yeah, that's so interesting. And if Tesla ends up having separate businesses, and I'm not, I won't call them side businesses, AWS is not a side business for, AWS, uh, for Amazon. It's a, it's a primary business, I would say, one of their primary businesses. It'll be interesting to see what Tesla does besides just make cars. So back to back to Tesla. Elon Musk had tweeted that $420 number per share uh, a few weeks ago, and then a bunch of stuff transpired in between. One thing I will point out is, so ARK Invest, it's one of these quote unquote uh, futurism investment funds, primarily venture capital. I don't, I think they do mostly VC and then some public investing. Their CEO, Catherine Wood, uh, put together a letter asking Elon not to take the company private. They actually put it together a really nice uh, weekly newsletter, which I'll link to in the show notes. But she wrote an open letter to about why Tesla should remain public. And I'll just read a few excerpts from here because I think it's mm -hmm. pretty interesting. So this is from them. According to ARK Invest's research, Tesla should be valued somewhere between $700 and $4,000 per share in five years. Taking Tesla private today at $420 per share would undervalue it greatly, depriving many investors of the opportunity to participate in its success. In our view, given the right investment time horizon, Tesla is a deep value stock today. 
I just want, this is me. I, I just want to point out calling Tesla deep value stock is pretty, pretty crazy, but so be it. Okay. Crazy or bold. It's, it's very bold. Very, very bold. Uh, and sometimes bold and crazy are the same. So our $4,000 price target assumes that Tesla evolves from a hardware manufacturer with 19% gross margins to a company generating most of its profits from mobility as a service or MAAS, a business that we believe will enjoy 80% gross margins. In the $4,000 scenario, our assumptions are conservative. We incorporate profits only from cars and certain autonomous taxi networks, not from trucks, drones, utilities, scale energy storage, or the MAAS opportunity in China. Further, we incorporate roughly $20 billion in dilution that might be necessary to penetrate and scale the latter four markets. Clearly, most asset managers in the public markets do not agree with us, which is why I'm writing you now. It's also bold to say those assumptions are conservative. But <laughs> so agreed. One thing in general, I think it's worth mentioning here, is I think a lot of people forget something when they see an investment manager make a public statement and they take what the investment manager is, is what they really think or truth rather than what the investment manager intends. It's pretty rare to see that if investment manager saying something on Barron's or Wall Street Journal or CNBC actually mean what they're saying. And maybe this is counterintuitive. I don't know. But at this point, I'm just always skeptical and wondering, like, what is there's more to this story when when they're out in public saying something. So, for example, it's pretty common for an investment manager to talk up a stock in order to put a short position on. Yeah, that sounds controversial, but they literally do it all the time. So it was really common in the past. Basically, if you're in the news, you now have a microphone to boost a stock. So if you go out and say, oh, I think like this like fiber optic stock is going to do really well. Uh, back during the tech boom, it would pop like 50, 60%. And then internally, you knew you're really negative on it. So you would put a short position on them. So managers lie to the public. They do. So I don't have any reason to think that's the case here with ARC's statement. But there's certainly more to the story. In this case, she lays out this whole mobility as a service thesis, which I think is a large part of how her fund invests. You know, Each of their newsletters talks about the space, what's going on in it, how much opportunity there is and whatnot. So maybe they're trying to raise more capital in the space. Maybe they're trying to make audacious claims so that others get interested in the space. I don't know. I'm just making a point. There's probably more to the story than just the story itself. And uh, just broadly talking about crypto, I think we should take note of this too. Lots of people are out there making claims to be long something. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're doing that in order to just put a short position on and vice versa. Anyway, so mm-hmm. back to this letter. She lays out her arguments as to why Tesla should remain private. So part one, first, as a private company, Tesla will be unable to capitalize on its competitive advantages as rapidly and dramatically as it would as a public company. An important consideration given the network effects and natural geographic monopolies to which autonomous taxi and truck networks will submit. Why? I don't see the connection. Uh, What does being private or public have to do with like what advantages are there? So I, that's it's a really fair question, and I think it's an outdated worldview uh, that public companies get more get more publicity, get more access than private companies. I don't think that's I don't think, I don't think that's have true a publicity issue. Yeah, yeah, right. With Tesla, especially, but <laughs> particularly yeah. with Elon Musk. Yeah, but think about Uber and Airbnb. Yeah, they're not public, and I don't know what their plans for going public are, if they are or whatever. But they have had no issues. So I don't think this is, I don't think this part's fair. 
Second part, in the private market, Tesla would lose the free publicity associated with your role as the CEO of a public company, not only with the best-selling mid-sized premium sedan in the U.S., but also arguably in the best position to launch a completely autonomous taxi network nationwide in the next few years. I don't know. What do you think, Faison? What do you think about this? I think that he has, there is zero publicity issues if he keeps up his usual antics. Like he was selling flamethrowers recently. There's the, you know, boring company stuff that's been going on. There was all the Thailand drama and like, he's still, they're still going to be doing all their demos, which are, have always been very, you know, popular. Uh, they'll be announcing new products if they're doing the model Y, uh, the Tesla semis, they're definitely going to be increasing battery production. And then also going into the next decade, there should be now that they've, you know, SpaceX has done multiple, like, you know, reusable rocket landings. I think we're going to see the next phase of their like Mars stuff. So if they're shooting rockets towards Mars, like they're, he's going to be in the public eye. So I, I don't think publicity is an issue Yeah, for them. I don't, I don't know that being in the public markets adds much to their like publicity factor. Yep. I think just what they do and their general antics are enough. Yep. So the third part, she says, uh, third, you will deprive most of your individual investors of a security to bet on and your strategy ceding that opportunity to high net worth and institutional investors. Uh, this is probably the most fair point. So new people, like if you want, you want to just go out and buy Tesla stock and the company's private, there is no way to do it. Uh, there is a way to do it. There's like secondary markets and stuff like that, but like a most retail investors. Accredited. Yeah, exactly. Most retail investors aren't going to be able to do it. So I think that's fair. I think this point could have made been made stronger, though, by talking about the ability to raise capital. Right. Like that to me is the only structural benefit to being public is it's easier to like raise capital on the public markets yep. or it's possible to, whereas you're limited if you stay private. Yeah, exactly. On follow on investment, especially if I think earlier in their thesis, there was talk about another $20 billion of dilution. Right. So I think that's the main structural difference. The rest of these things... Don't seem very compelling. Yeah, and the last point is uh, number four. Finally, if you do not take do not take Tesla private, you will be surprised and gratified at investor reaction once they realize and understand the scope and ramifications of your long term vision and strategies. So this thing's kind of fluffy. I think it's just like a nod to Elon being nice. Um, I don't think it deserves its own point, but if it's intended for him to read it, certainly he'll like be grateful that you know <laughs> she said that. So it's fine. I don't think it's a big deal. It's probably smart to, to not poke the right. <laughs> hornet's list there. Yeah. So there was that letter. There was some commotion between the board and Musk. There's been some inquir- inquiries by the SEC into Musk's tweets. And in general, I do agree with the view that there's been weird and improper release of information, like how the company didn't put out an 8K, like how he tweeted about it before the board knew about it, before there was a press release. And most recently... Uh, it sounds like Musk no longer wants to take the company private, which is why we're talking about this today. So we'll put the letter in the show notes, but um, a letter went out late Friday night. And there's three main points to the to his argument about keeping the company public. Point one, given the feedback I've received, it's apparent that most of Tesla's existing shareholders believe we are better off as a company. Two, if I knew I knew the process of going private would be challenging, but it's clear that it would be even more time consuming and distracting than initially anticipated. Three, that said, my belief that there is more than enough funding to take Tesla private was reinforced during this process. Of course uh, it was. Yeah. Part three is like kind of cover your ass. Part 
Two is super, super relevant. Is it easier to fight the shorts or to take the company private? I think that's like maybe a line of thinking that you could consider. Like it's not easy to do it. It's a giant company. There's going to be all kinds of stakeholders. Yeah. How do you handle all the current shareholders? That sort of thing. So I think that's what he was going for there. So I know the shorts are going to totally gobble this up and they're going to gobble this gobble up in particular the timing of the release. So it went out late Friday. Mm-hmm. In general, when a company puts out a press release late Friday, it means they don't want people to see it. Like there, I've seen these counters where there's these like floods of 8Ks and press releases on Friday after 5 p.m. No one actually is really reading these. Uh, the broad market at all, market at large is not really paying attention to them. So there are all kinds of amazing trades that came out of this. I remember back in the day, basically you'd see who put out something Friday uh, afternoon and then you'd look through their filings over the weekend, see if there's anything interesting in there. And if there was, you'd come in Monday and when everyone else was thinking about like the week ahead, what happened over the weekend, that kind of thing, you had some time to put on trades before the market widely saw the news. Yeah. And the the crypto version of this is going to be much tougher to do because there isn't fixed timing or sources for where a lot of these announcements happen. Yeah. People just put out stuff whenever. If there's some kind of like self-regulatory agency in crypto or an organization, you know, maybe they might formalize that a bit or or more trustworthy crypto teams would would be a bit more formal in how they do it, but right now it's just people just there's like Commits just go out, and then a couple of days later, they might an important commit might go out, and then a few days later, they might mention you know whatever like code update they had to their uh, mainnet. Right? It's not. It's very much wild, wild west. So, yeah. well, Tesla, yeah, I don't think Musk is trying to pull the wool over people's eyes with the Friday release. I mean, just, this is the, one of the biggest tech business news stories of the year. Really doubt he think people wouldn't notice. I think he's just. I don't know why it went out at that time, but. I don't think it's a big deal, but uh, you know, a big question is whether or not people are going to give Tesla a pass. Yeah. I I mean, it, it seems like it's the audience is pretty split. Like the shorts will be, as you said, like all over it. And then there's the diehard Tesla supporters that will give them a pass. Right. If Tesla is a value stock right. thesis. <laughs> so the other th- uh, big thing that happened last week were the Bitcoin ETFs were rejected. Now there's only one on the docket now after this. But the three, the I think there were three that were rejected, ProShares, Granite Shares, and Drexion. So in general, like I think this is good they were rejected, and we'll, we'll talk about that after the SEC logic. Uh, after talking a little bit about the SEC logic, there's a great thread by Jake Chervinsky, uh, which we'll put in the show notes, but he summarizes basically into three points. Is the SEC thinks there's quite a bit that the Bitcoin market is subject to manipulation. So there's three things that they want to see. One, a surveillance sharing agreement with a regulated market of significant size. So I think... So what does that mean? So surveillance sharing agreement, I guess, if we start with... So I think what that means is right now the spot market and the trading market are kind of all over the place. Like there's exchanges in Hong Kong, there's exchanges here. They don't really talk to each other, right? So they can't, if there's some kind of manipulation, like they don't necessarily know about it. And I bet a bunch of these exchanges are, are know about the manipulation too. They just don't share 
share it with one another or the public at large. Um, there's probably, of course, more okay. like good exchanges, good actor exchanges, and of course, there are bad actor exchanges. I'll give you a quick example, and I'm not calling BitMEX out because I don't know anything about them, but this is it's a it's known to be like bear paradise there, meaning it's very easy to put like very large leverage short positions on BitMEX. It's it's a a, a large Bitcoin exchange where you have the ability to trade on margin. So the other day, BitMEX went down for a bit. And what does that mean? That means you can't actually trade on BitMEX. That means you can't, people who want to be short, can't put short positions on. People who want to put any kind of position on can't. What happened while they were down? Bitcoin's price rose. So again, it's always hard to like say because BitMEX went down and because it's like a bear's palace, and when you can't have that bear's palace open, that means people can't short and that means the price went up. Not necessarily saying that, but I am saying it's suspicious. Like if you take a, a player out of the market, the price of Bitcoin move, moves as much as it did. It moved like you know 4%, 5%, which is pretty significant because of an exchange. So we have that kind of stuff going on. Um, regulated market, so that is not a great... Like the fact there isn't a regulated market is not great in the eyes of the SEC, right? Right. So they want to see that. And then they want to see significant size. So that that's pretty funny. It's just kind of like a slap in crypto's face a little bit. Um, <laughs> it's like, you guys are so small. Uh, try to get bigger and then we'll we'll talk about this again. Yeah. So that happened. And then just the other day, Hester Pierce, commissioner with the SEC, um, she asked for a re-review. So not totally clear how this works exactly, but like, I don't think the commissioners necessarily were involved in the decision. There was like another group. And then any commissioner can come out and say, like, let's re-review this. And Hester Pierce has said, uh, has been positive on Bitcoin ETF in the past. So it's likely that she just wants it uh, re-reviewed. Might not change anything, but we'll see. So in general, like, I think this is good. ProShares, Granite Shares, Direxion, they do what they do in the stock market, but this isn't the stock market. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I, I mean, I don't know about you, Faison, but I am not super interested in just like a price tracking ETF. Like, so explain to me what that means, a price tracking ETF versus like, what would you prefer? Okay. So a price tracking ETF is just an ETF that if you hold your guaranteed price, your guarantee, like whatever Bitcoin does, like how Bitcoin's price moves, that ETF will track it. And the problem with this is it's just not interesting at all, given the space. So you don't actually own any of the underlying asset. Is that the you idea? You don't. Yeah, you don't own any of the underlying asset. You can't participate in the underlying assets network. So if Ethereum goes to proof of stake and you own like if the price tracking. ETF and Ethereum, are you going to get staking rewards? Right. I see you're saying. Yeah. And so how does that work? So if you are not participating in the network, if you don't own any of the underlying assets, does the, like mechanically, is whoever is running the ETF actually doing that stuff, but you just can't like, you don't, you don't actually own Bitcoin, but they, yeah. they are buying and selling to ma manage the price of the ETF? That is the theoretical way that they would do it. They would own... Like they would own X Bitcoin and right. your price tracker would be like a percentage of that, but not all of it. Okay. So 
that's why it's not interesting. I think it's I think it's dangerous too because it ends up flooding the market with like if you want institutional investors, and I think Bitcoin investors do want that. They want them participating in the network. They don't want just them to just like hold it. So, I guess uh, doesn't money coming into this ETF increase network participation because whoever is actually administering the ETF will ha- be forced to purchase Bitcoin or run nodes or participate in the network to manage the ETF? Or um, can they just I, buy and hold a bunch and they don't actually have to do much? I think they can just buy some and then distribute a percentage of that to new ETF participants. That's why it sucks. Okay. Because they're not they're not even like running a node. They're not even buying Bitcoin every time someone buys some of the ETF. Oh, I see. I th- okay. Yeah, I think it's it's a huge problem and I think it's it's very different from stocks because you buying Tesla stock doesn't give you access to like a Tesla car. And that's understandable because you're buying equity in this company. But buying Bitcoin or buying Ethereum or buying any other coin that has more to its network, like you should be able to participate in that. Like when second layer solutions on top of Bitcoin become more prevalent, when there's returns to be able to run lightning nodes, right? Got it. Okay. Uh, so yeah, it brings in capital without bringing in the commensurate amount of network participation. And that's exactly. Got it's it. a huge problem because institutions will say, okay, I'll just own a bunch of these ETFs. And then what they could have been doing is like running their own nodes, participating in the lightning network, things like that. So there are broader worries around this kind of financial engineering. And it is, that is what it is. There are worries that it would create this like paper Bitcoin. And Caitlin Long um, had a pretty interesting for article in Forbes about this. And I think she brings up a few points like one, how are chain splits and forks going to be handled? Will Wall Street create paper Bitcoin, which are these like fake Bitcoin that an ETF's clients hold, which aren't representative of the real Bitcoin? And also what happens if Bitcoin introduces a feature like privacy, which the government doesn't like? Like these are all major, these aren't just like edge cases. These are pretty big features. Right. Maybe not for Bitcoin specifically, but for definitely for a lot of other currencies. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Ethereum, like if say it splits again, like, okay, proof of when Ethereum moves from proof of work to proof of stake, I am willing to bet there will be a high likelihood that there will be a fork and there'll be a traditional, it's not even like Ethereum classic. It's like Ethereum classic, classic and Ethereum proof of stake or something like that. I don't know what the names will be. Yeah. And if that happens, that, on which side of the, on the, of the fork, they'll right. both yeah. call it Ethereum, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they'll both call it Ethereum. There'll be some battle around it. The, if the institutions are involved, they'll want to, whatever is the highest returning, like which will, will the proof of stake be the highest recur- yeah. returning one? Uh, yeah. What are all the developers going to do? Like there's tons of questions. And yeah. If, like I guess an ETF doesn't, account for all of the scenarios of ownership of a cryptocurrency where it does for a stock where you just uh, it's just an equity share yeah equity share maybe there's a dividend like if a company starts offering a dividend then the etf holders start you know there there's a there's a process right right here there isn't and it's still early stages so i think it's too early for a bitcoin etf and maybe i don't know if that's controversial or not but i just think it's too early so the only ETF now that's left is the one that we talked about a little while ago, which were actually like kind of interesting uh, because they have like insurance in place. They have custody solution in place. 
will want to learn more about the VanEck and Solid X ETF, but that is the only one that's left for the time being. But I think your to your second part of your question, like what I would like to see is if institutions want to get involved and custody is a big issue, insurance is a big issue, an ETF that helps sol- solve those problems. Don't it doesn't even need to be an ETF, but it's some sort of asset instrument run by people who run nodes, know how to stake, can handle forks, so forth and so on. That's probably what I'd want to see. But if you're an institution, you're still going to miss out because you're you're relying on others to handle all that stuff for you. Hmm. But yeah, that's basically uh, that's at least what I think. Yeah. Next, I wanted to highlight some uh, some interesting alerts that came through. Um, not just because they are relevant to price movement, but we're just seeing some fascinating trends overall in the space. So one of the things is just uh, watching all of these uh, Telegram admin chats for a number of different coins. And uh, sorry, but one, uh, don't mean to interrupt, but basically these are the alerts that came through our platform, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. For those of you listening for the first time, we are building a cryptocurrency news alerting platform, market intelligence platform for investors and traders. So in our podcast, we typically highlight some of the more interesting ones we see come in. And sometimes it's busier than others. And this week, it seems like it was pretty busy. Yeah. Yeah. So some weeks I'd like to pick out the ones that were maybe uh, related to some big price movements or fraud. This week was just a little more, I guess, like trends we're seeing. Um, so the first was just looking through a lot of what admins across different uh, coin chats are saying on Telegram. Uh, there's been a big crackdown on uh, price discussion. So if you you would go into most of these Telegrams, you'd see a lot of, like I guess, useful discussion, but a lot of people that just talk about price. Is the price going to be at this on this date? When's the price going to be this? And not backed by any like reasonable... It was like not a reasonable discussion. It's literally just people asking, when's, if it, the price is $3, when's it going to be $4? <laughs> and... And so what we first saw was uh, some of these chats would, were actually splitting off, like they had their general chat and then they'd have another one for price discussion. And yeah, now we're seeing like Icon, VeChain, Bycoin, just list a few. Uh, so to quote uh, Icon, price calls without providing insight and or rationale behind your opinions will no long, no, not be tolerated any longer. <laughs> Which is, I think, a pretty reasonable stance because, yeah. honestly, a lot of these chats were getting polluted with garbage. Yeah, and when we see these these uh, this trend across multiple chats, so I think that's great to see. I think it's a sign of, you know, we've talked about wanting like some standardized disclosure and whatnot. We're not there yet, but we're seeing some maturity coming to these what are essentially the like official disclosure platforms for a lot of these coins. So just cleaning that up to be more useful, I think, is a good first step. Yeah. In the, maturity of these the ecosystem yeah also how would like the people that are asking this right like how would the admins know like you don't ever know what the price is going to be in the future it's like oh on uh september 8th it's going to be four dollars like, there's like no way that you could ever say that yeah yeah exactly so it it, it added no value it, it just yeah it's pollution clogged up the chat with yeah it's pollution so i think just cleaning that up is a good sign some of them have been more specific about like okay not just price discussion but definitely no like pump and dump type stuff like, oh, I'm going to be buying at this time or I'm going to be selling at this time or stuff like that. So they, they will, they're starting to ban people for stuff like that. Good. Another thing that we caught, again, this goes back to like stuff that gets announced first in Telegram. VeChain is undergoing a token swap. 
to the native uh, VET token on the VChain Thor blockchain. So you can't send the ERC20 VEN to the VChain Thor address or vice versa. The VEN token is going to be doing a 1 to 100 split. So that's pretty cool. You catch that in Telegram. You know, they're moving to their own chain and doing a token split. Was this a, uh, uh, did this come from the Telegram chat? Yeah, exactly. And then uh, another one that I thought was interesting. So I know in a previous podcast we had talked uh, in, when we were talking about IOTA, we had talked about their motivation, which was being able to uh, process payments in the internet of things economy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pretty, uh, I think I'd say meaningful event is, uh, so Nano is another uh, coin that is interested in the IOT economy. So they have just uh, showed, they launched a YouTube video actually. They have a prototype device that runs Nano that is a charger. So basically in their demo, you plug in something that you want to charge and then you scan the QR code on their charger. And essentially it's a micropayment. So as you charge, let's say your phone, um, you get billed for using that device uh, to the exact amount. Uh, there's no change given, no like credit card authorization, no limit to how small the payment can be. So it's pretty cool. It's a you know tiny step, but we're seeing the first working prototype of some of these things that have been you know just white papers for a long time. Oh, interesting. So that's a micropayment to you use the to actually charge the device. Is that mm-hmm. am I understanding that right? Okay. Yeah. So I plug you know let's say I want to charge my GoPro. I plug in my GoPro. I scan the QR code and the exact amount of time it's charging is what I get billed for. That is really cool. Yeah. And so we can add it. We'll post a link to the uh, uh, YouTube video in the show notes and you yep. can actually see it in action. And then one other item I want to talk about is uh, Lisk. So Lisk was something that I first heard about last year. Basically, when I first started reading about Ethereum scaling issues, I th- my theory was that there's going to be some other players that grab some market share. And I was just looking around for good, uh, good alternatives to Ethereum for a platform on which you can run dApps. And so uh, one of these is uh, Lisk. And so they have this idea of there's a main chain, but uh, rather than everything running on the main chain, there's side chains on which your application runs. So that's supposed to help with scaling. And they also have a JavaScript SDK. So that's supposed to help with, you know, growing the network and getting to market uh, because it's easier to develop applications in JavaScript than maybe your own language. And so they're essentially a Ethereum competitor because the idea is you run, you know, dApps on their chain and it's more mm-hmm. scalable. So the big news here is they're about to launch their mainnet. So a lot of their, you know, they had a white paper last year. A lot of the SDK and a lot of their functionality has been development. And this is something that was we caught on our platform where they're announcing the mainnet launch. So excited to see how that does, because I think it'll be good to see some some Ethereum alternatives tackling the same problem. Yep. And then finally, uh, want to talk about uh, Raiden. So Raiden, just the simplistic explanation is they're trying to be the lightning network for uh, ERC-20 compliant uh, Ethereum tokens. So essentially open up a side channel to do token transfers. So they actually had a lot of GitHub activity recently, but we'll post this commit in the show notes, but I was really happy to see one of their commits where they uh, essentially changed their, like something to do with their constant expiration time. It has a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight paragraph explanation of the single commit that changes functionality. 
which is great because it's something critical to how the thing behaves. And rather than parsing through the code, hoping that if you understand the code base well enough and you understand the language they're writing it in, you can figure out the implications, they actually attach the implications of their change uh, to the code. And, you know, we've talked in the past about like disclosure and regfd and how that ties to like the crypto world. But I think it's something that we're going to want to see in on GitHub as well, because code affects the viability or the the quality of a good project. So if there's structural changes being made public, then I think having a good explanation of what those are is really important. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm, I'm just looking at the commit now. This is definitely an A plus commit. It's probably one of the longer commit messages I've seen. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's cool about that is even if you're not a developer, uh, but you have, you know, a pretty solid understanding of uh, the technology in the space, like you can just read through this and have a decent idea of what's going on. And also right, know right. Like, like how to follow up too. Like even if you don't get everything, like what does time hash time lock expiration mean? You probably know where to go to ask that. Right. Or you could maybe go read their white paper. And if you understood the white paper, then you read this, you understand what's changed and uh, what the implications might yeah. be. That's pretty, pretty huge and cool. Hey everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you're an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at QuantLayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at QuantLayer.com, that's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at QuantLayer.com. I will write back, thanks. Thank you.